Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Weather whiplash is the only way to describe the last week across Canada, with soaring temps plunging quickly back to bitter cold. Most will tell you it's climate change, but there is a phenomenon that exists that when you put away your winter clothes in Canada, a snowstorm will appear. So I'm sorry I need to fess up. It was me. I was too eager and packed away all the winter gear too early. Thankfully, I hope I redeem myself with this week's show because it's filled with incredible interviews with amazing women from across Canada. Here's what's coming up. As the AI revolution continues to unfold, deep fakes are on the rise and alarmingly over 90% of deep fake victims are women. Amber Mack has been following AI and in particular deepfakes closely and joins me today to discuss how and where it's created and distributed, the damage it can cause, and what we can do about it. This is an important discussion all women need to listen to. Canadians throw away over 3 million tons of plastic waste every year, and only 9% is recycled, while the rest ends up in our landfills, waste to energy facilities, or the environment. Kaylee Dale and Jackie Hutchings founded Friendlier to help stem the tide of this environmental nightmare by drastically reducing the use of single-use plastics in restaurants. Anne Brody joins me with entertainment, and this week we take a look at Twice Colonized, which follows Inuit lawyer and sealskin clothes designer Aju Peter over seven years. The story of Joseph Ballone, aka Chevalier, a French Creole violinist, composer, conductor, and fencer in Paris at the time of Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution, and Mrs. Davis, a fun, smart, and action-packed movie starring Betty Gilpin. Last month, Dr. Mita Mana joined me on behalf of NBCTime.ca to discuss metastatic breast cancer, or MBC for short, to provide valuable information for those either living with MBC or who know someone with MBC. This month, we're joined by Karima Jessany. Karima is from Ontario, a wife and mother to three, and has been living with metastatic breast cancer since 2013. Karima is here to share insight into her battle with this illness and the common misconceptions surrounding breast cancer. Money is never too tight to mention around here. In fact, the only way to make it through these troubling times is to talk about every aspect of our finances. That's why I invited Jess and Colleen from Two Girls Investing to join me today to share their tips for riding out this economic storm we find ourselves in. Finally, Tara McLean recently released her best-selling debut memoir, Song of the Sparrow, which has received critical acclaim from numerous artists and publications. Alongside the book, Tara also released an accompanying album, which is a collection of reimagined past work and new material. She joins me to share a little bit of the story behind the book and the album before we play the single Lay Here in the Dark for you. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. My 
My first guest today is a powerhouse in the digital world. Amber Mack has been actively involved in digital innovation since the dot-com boom in San Francisco. She joins me today to shed light on a topic that warrants our attention, the disturbing reality that over 90% of deepfake victims are women. These women face online sexual harassment or abuse through non-consensual deepfake pornography, a rapidly growing problem with motives ranging from revenge porn to blackmail. While deepfakes targeting politicians or political discourse account for less than 5% of those circulating online, the gendered impact of this technology remains under-discussed. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about this really disturbing trend because I think with everything that's happened with AI recently, this is only going to get worse. So can you explain how deepfake technology is being used to create the pornographic material and how why it is disproportionately affecting women and girls. Deepfake technology has been around for the past few years. So essentially, you can think about it like this. It's software that uh, allows you to create manipulated videos that uh, bear a person's likeness uh, without, of course, their consent. So this leads to a whole bunch of issues. That means all of a sudden you could take an image of uh, a woman that you know or a politician and you could feed it into the software and then the software would output a video of that person in a number of different scenarios based on what you want. When it comes to deep fake pornography, like you said, this is a growing issue for so many women who are the victim of this technology. I'm curious, how much how much of this is out there that women don't know that their image is out there? That's a really great question. I think for most women, there is a really good chance if you are a victim of this technology that you don't even realize that that is the case. Uh, there are a couple of different websites uh, where these deep fake videos are housed, but quite frankly, they can be spread across the internet in a number of different ways. It's really difficult to find out that you are a victim of deep fake videos uh, unless someone tells you that they saw you. Of course, not many people are going to admit to that, uh, or you're constantly scouring the web to see if anything is out there. But you can see at the end of the day how devastating this could be for a woman who is a victim of this tech. Let's talk about the consequences then. What does that look like for women who are victims of deepfake pornography? What we've really seen so far is that for women who are the victims of deep fake pornography is that it is devastating. I mean, there's shame that comes alongside these videos being released. Um, obviously, there is reputational damage, which has a huge impact on women. So I think what we're seeing at the end of the day that, that this is just another example of uh, harassment and bullying that's taking place online. But I'd argue that it, it's more severe then we are really ready for in terms of having a course of action if you are a victim of a deep fake in the first place. So how does the current legislation then struggle to address the issue of deep fake pornography and what changes do you believe are necessary to protect victims? From my perspective right now, there really aren't any relevant or modern laws in place to help to protect women from being victims of deep fake pornography. In some places, such as California in the U.S., they do have laws specifically in place to deal with these types of attacks on women. But I'd argue that in Canada, we have a 
a lot of work to do and it needs to be done quickly so that there is recourse uh, for women if they find they are a victim of deep fake technology. And keeping in mind that uh, there are some of these video sites that are spreading these deep fakes where it is required that you enter a credit card to actually watch and, and view these deep fakes. So again, there are courses of action in place uh, for legislators to go after anyone who is part of this equation. I feel like this is going to go down a little bit of a different path here for a second, but a lot of these videos are found on what's called the dark web, right? Yes. Yeah, so uh, definitely a lot of these videos are found on the dark web, which is uh, not a place <laughs> uh, that uh, many people are uh, visiting in terms of especially women who are spending a lot of time on the dark web looking for uh, potential instances of them being victims of deep fakes. Uh, but there are some websites as well that are um, common websites um, on the internet that all of us access day to day where these deep fake videos are found. And to me, it feels like that's kind of the the first line of defense is how do we uh, actually have laws in place to protect women if, in fact, their videos are found in some of these everyday websites that exist that spread deep fake porn? So short of never going on the internet, never sharing a single image of yourself anywhere, are there steps we could take to protect ourselves from being victims of this? This is uh, a question that really concerns me because, uh, first of all, so often when vi women are, are the victim of an attack like this, you know, the onus is on us to figure out a way that, hey, how are we going to protect ourselves? Uh, but the truth is, it's not realistic that we don't share images of ourselves online. Uh, we can't all live where we, we don't participate um, on the internet because that's part of our modern lives. So for me, it feels like there's not a lot that we as individuals, as women can do to protect ourselves. Uh, but again, I think there, there needs to be laws in place. So if you find out that you are a victim of a deep fake, uh, what is the course of action that you take? What, um, what laws are in place in terms of uh, what happens to someone who both creates these videos and puts them online or shares these videos? There has to be some modern updates to the laws that we have in place today for what is going to happen over the months to come or we're going to see women who are entirely shamed away from using the internet for both work and for their personal lives. When it comes to education, how early do you think we should be talking about the impacts of pornography, deep fake pornography, uh, you know, uh, healthy sexual relationships? How early should we be talking about that with kids? Well, I think this is one of the concerns that I have right now and why I've been talking more about deepfakes is that uh, we have, of course, heard of terms like sextortion, uh, where if you had an intimate experience um, with uh, a boyfriend in your teens, uh, of course, you want to make sure that uh, that's private, that they're not sharing any, any images or any videos. But deepfake pornography is totally different because it is manipulated media. That means that you didn't even have to do anything in the first place. You didn't even have to have a relationship with someone. Uh, these attacks could be um, from individuals on women they don't even know. So I think awareness, of course, is critical in this equation. But I think it really speaks volumes when we know that um, there's a not a lot that uh, a young girl could do if they were a victim of this tech. Uh, we also know how things go, especially uh, oftentimes 
sometimes with younger people and, and revenge porn and trying to humiliate people. With the power of this technology in young people's hands, I think we're in for uh, a devastating future where uh, we increasingly see more and more young women and girls who are victims of uh, what has been weaponization of deep fake technology. Are you particularly concerned with what you've been seeing with deep fakes since, uh, you know, let's say December when AI really sort of barged into the scene for, for all of us? Well, I think it was interesting. If we look back at uh, the short history of deepfake technology, in 2017, we were starting to see videos online where people would take a video of a, a president like U.S. President Barack Obama. They would cre create a deepfake video. It was politicians who were victims of this. I think what's happened is that AI has, AI has advanced so much, especially over the past few months, is that it's getting easier than ever to create a realistic-looking deepfake porn video. So you don't necessarily necessarily need, you know, a bunch of video of a person or uh, dozens of photos of a person. It's going to get easier and easier to create these videos because of the advancements of artificial intelligence, where there will be a day, if it's not uh, today in our near future, where you only need one image and a really inexpensive piece of software to go and potentially ruin a person's life. So tell me then, are there ways currently that women can get involved to uh, push our politicians to act faster? I think one of the most important things is just um, making politicians uh, aware of uh, what's happening right now in terms of deep fake technology and understanding the threat that is on our doorstep today and uh, ensuring that there are some safeguards in place to protect women. And, you know, it's it's devastating to me when I read about deepfake technology in the first place, uh, like you shared in terms of the stats, that more than 90% of these deepfake videos feature women um, and it's non-consensual. So even though this tech could be used for a number of different purposes, once again, what we've seen is that women are the target and the goal is to shame and silence. And uh, all of us need to speak up against this. We do. All right, Amber, thank you so much for joining me today. This was very interesting and disturbing, uh, but we will have you back again to talk about uh, these issues and more, I'm sure, this year. Thank you. Thank you so much. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. What happens when two chemical engineers meet and become best friends? Well, in the case of Kaylee Dale and Jackie Hutchins, they start a company that dreams of a world where there is no waste. Their company, Friendlier, is on a mission to create the biggest sustainability impact possible. And after noticing that Canada was lagging behind in reusable plastics, especially compared to Europe, they decided to focus here. 
Since then, they've partnered with over 200 businesses across Ontario, including major players like Scotiabank and Loblaws, to help transition to reusable plastics and reduce the environmental impact of single-use plastics. So what inspired Kaylee and Jackie to start Friendlier, and what impact have they made so far? Let's find out now as we dive into their story. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. We're excited to be here. So can you tell me more about you, how you came up with the idea for Friendlier and what motivated you to start the company? Yeah, Kaylee and I went to the University of Waterloo where we studied chemical engineering, as you mentioned, and we were exposed to many different manufacturing facilities where you can see things being created at a large scale um, in one facility and there's a lot of waste. And so that didn't really sit well with us. But then we got the opportunity to live in Sweden and we got to see how things were done in Europe and see a more conscious way of consumerism and more conscious way to live. And we wanted to bring that idea back to Canada. We saw lots of different deposit return models over there. And we knew that in order to make it work in North America, it has to be super convenient and super fast paced because we're always on the move. So that's what we um, decided to create in Canada. So how has the response been from businesses and customers then so far? It's been great. We uh, started right at the beginning of the pandemic. So it was a, an interesting time to start a business, especially in the food service industry. Um, but we started working with local restaurants and businesses in Guelph, which is where we're based. And we have just you know, been taking their feedback, learning and growing to create a really simple system for businesses to use that works really well for their customers. So the feedback has been really exciting and we've been continuing to scale with new partners and through existing partners as well. Okay, then can you walk us through the process then of how the QR code and deposit system works for customers who use Friendlier? Absolutely. So if someone's getting a meal in a Friendlier container, they purchase their meal. Most of our customers don't even offer it as an option. So you just get your meal in a bright blue, beautiful, reusable container. When you're finished your meal, you can flip over the container and there's a unique QR code on the bottom of every container. You just have to pull out your smartphone, turn on your camera and scan that code using your camera and it'll take you to our app. Um, basically, it will allocate that 50 cent deposit or a dollar deposit to your email address. And then all you have to do after you've scanned it is drop it into any return bin. All of our participating locations will have return bins at them. So it doesn't have to be the place that you got it from. We'll pick them up from there. We scan them as well to confirm that it was returned. And then you can request e-transfer for those deposits at any point, or you can choose to donate them to any of our local charities that are listed on our app and on our web app. And if you choose to keep the container, you've you've paid the deposit. So you have a nice blue container in your house. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Some people choose to keep them and reuse them at home. All right. So with the you guys are kind of right time, right place. I mean, the Canadian government's phased out single-use plastics. So how do you see the market for reusable plastics evolving? Yeah, it's a really exciting time to be in the space. You know, there's a lot going on both from a federal level, as you mentioned, but also provincially and across municipalities everywhere in, in Canada and into the U.S. as well. Uh, we've been watching Europe closely. They're ahead of us. They, a lot of countries in Europe have, you know, mandated that businesses have reuse programs or have a certain amount of packaging be reusable and eligible for return. So that's been really exciting to see. And we're expecting similar legislation to come down the pipeline eventually for Canada. Obviously, we're, we're a few years behind, but we can see that needle moving with the federal single-use plastic ban, for example, 
and a lot of the other uh, pieces of legislation coming down the pipeline. So what would you say has been your biggest accomplishment to date then for Friendlier and what's the goal for the future? Yeah, great question. Um, Some of our biggest accomplishments to date have been partnering up with some of Canada's leading food service providers. So we're working with Compass Group Canada with a national plan to expand to their accounts and to reduce as much single-use packaging as possible. I think partnering with them has been huge. Also working with Loblaw companies has been amazing. But the thing that really makes us happy is seeing those containers come back and we're actually right on the cusp of hitting half a million containers that have been reused in our system. So that's really what why we do what we do and that's really what excites us at the end of the day. But aside from just those these containers, is there another layer to the business that you're hoping to add in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our goal has always been to create a circular supply chain in packaging in general. So we've, you know, started with takeout containers in this specific industry and market. Um, but our ultimate goal is to create the infrastructure and the technology to be able to bring reuse to scale across different packaging industries. So, you know, there's opportunity to have these collection systems in place across other industries as well. And, and it's all about creating that circular system. Absolutely. I'm excited to see where you ladies go next. So I want people to be able to keep up with you and uh, keep on top of what all you're doing. So where's the best place to follow? Absolutely. You can come check us out on our website, www.friendlier.ca. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook at bbe.friendlier. Um, or, you know, to head to our Twitter, we have bebfriendlier um, with underscore there. All right. Incredible. We're going to put all of those links in the liner notes when this goes live on podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, ladies. Thank you. This week's Saturday night at the movies looks amazing. So let's jump in right now with Anne Brody. Anne, tell me about Twice Colonized. Twice Colonized is just a wonderful documentary. It is the opening night feature for the Toronto Hot Docs 30th Annual Film Festival, the biggest documentary film festival in North America. And it's it's by filmmaker Lynn Aluna. And she followed... Inuit lawyer and sealskin clothes designer Aju Peter for seven years to get this documentary done. Now, Peter uh, describes how she was colonized twice. First of all, she was born and grew up in Greenland. She was taken and stripped of her indigenous uh, culture in Denmark. And she has a real uh, antipathy for Denmark now. Even the language sets her off. And then she moved over to uh, uh North America up in um, Inuvet and she realized again she was colonized by the south I mean using the term colonized by ruled by a different country so she's been an international activist for years now she's spoken at the UN she's gone to conferences in Abu Dhabi all over the world she's a brilliant woman she's just really small and tiny uh, she's in her mid-60s, and she dances all the time. She looks about 30. 
<laughs> anyway, she is a very interesting uh, subject for a documentary. So I would highly recommend that people see this either at Hot Docs on April 27th or it begins theatrically on May 12th. Okay, excellent. Next up is Chevalier and that looks really good. Oh, and so does the uh, lead, right? Kelvin Harrison Jr. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, fine. You've got me. The lead looks really good. Yes. <laughs> All right. Now, this is a film uh, about a relatively unknown uh, person in French history. Um, his name was uh, Joseph Boulogne, and he was named Chevalier by Marie Antoinette. He grew up on a slave plantation in the islands and was taken over by his white father who figured he deserved an education. Well, he was such a brilliant man. He was so gifted in so polymath. He could play, he outplayed uh, Mozart on the violin in public <laughs> and ticked everybody, him off anyway. Um, he became a leading swordsman uh, all the women were after him in Marie Antoinette's court. So we see his life play out. Very interesting life. And then, of course, the revolution happens. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Very, very interesting stuff, Chevalier. And where is that, Anne? That's in theaters. Theaters. Excellent. Okay, I want to talk about Mrs. Davis because this seems so timely. Oh, yeah. It's a mystery. Okay, so Betty Gilpin, who's one of my favorite action stars, female, stars in this. And you know that if it's it, that it's going to be fun and action-packed and really brainy if she's in it. She's very good at picking what she does. So it's 1300 in France, and um, uh, people are storming this convent because they think the Holy Grail is there, and they kill many of the nuns. Well, it's given to one of them to move to North America back then and keep it safe. So cut to Las Vegas, modern times, and Betty Gilpin plays a nun in a convent just outside the city. She's dedicated to what she does, um, and she is told, she is instructed to find the Holy Grail by this AI presence, omnipresent, um, not so benign creature called it. She calls him it, but it's not an it. It's a It's a female. And you'll learn all about the identity later on. Uh, so she's up against some very terrifying opponents, including neo-Nazis, some of the, some of her order, um, as she tries to either find the grail and and cause it to die. It's very complicated. It's hard to put into a couple of sentences, but it's about the complications that AI brings to our lives. And if you're following Google Bard, the release of that, that's another thing. It learns on its own. It's an AI system that learns on its own. It teaches itself a language if it's heard one word, that kind of a thing. So, you know, we're handing over everything to these omnipresent forces, AI forces, and that's what this is about. But it's very exciting, too. It's, it's all about her mission, her, her 
ability to defend herself and it's highly entertaining. So Mrs. Davis is definitely a good one. And that is on, it's on a couple of places, uh, Crave and CTV Sci-Fi Channel. And it's from Warner Brothers. Okay. We only have about 30 seconds left. Let's talk quickly about Love and Death because I know this was already done with Jessica Biel, but now it's being yeah. done with... Elizabeth Olsen. Elizabeth Olsen. Right. Who I adore. So which one is better? Um, I... I like this. I don't like the subject matter. I find it so frightening. But Elizabeth Olsen, who I think is a very, very good, even underrated actress, plays Candy Montgomery, a real life Texas woman, who decided to have an affair with her church going best friend's husband. Um, it's gruesome. <laughs> but people like this kind of thing. They like to watch it because they feel safe and comfy at home. Uh, but anyway, so she, she, this woman finds out about her. This woman takes an ax to her. She gets the ax out of her hand. And then, you know, this God-fearing community is turned up, right upside down. Um, and it, it gets a lot of digs in about fundamentalism and the social repression of women uh, in those sort of cultish churches. So a lot going on. Where can we catch that? It's on Crave. Excellent. All right. And you'll be back next week with much more. Thank you. See you then. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Every year, 28,600 women in Canada will learn they have breast cancer, and 5% of these women will be diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Last month, Dr. Mita Mana joined me on behalf of NBCTime.ca to discuss metastatic breast cancer, or MBC for short, to provide valuable information for those either living with MBC or know someone with MBC. This month, we're joined by Karima Jessini. Karima is from Ontario, is a wife and mother to three, and has been living with metastatic breast cancer since 2013. Karima is here to share insight into her battle with this illness and the common misconceptions surrounding breast cancer. Welcome to What She Said, Karima. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I want to thank you so much for joining me today to share your journey with metastatic breast cancer. Can you start by giving us a brief overview of your story from your initial diagnosis to living with MBC? Um, so I would, as you said, I was diagnosed back in 2013. Um, initially, we thought that we had caught um, the lump early in this um, stage. Um, so the prognosis was pretty good. It was almost like 85%, especially with the technology and everything that's come around so it wasn't as worrisome but um the day of my day before my surgery my surgeon called and said that the prognosis doesn't look very good and that it looks like it has spread so we would need to do a full mastectomy instead of lumpectomy and at that point like when you at least for me when you're diagnosed with cancer it's like okay get rid of anything and everything in your body that will like you being 
naive to say that okay that will make it better and so it's like yeah 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 sure let's get that done and he's he goes to me think about it because it's it's a it's a big process and like there's a lot involved in there and i'm like no we're good and um in retrospect now i realize what he was trying to say in terms of the magnitude it's like a part of your body is being amputated a part of your body um, whether it's from a sexual connotation or any form it's being um it's being removed and i didn't re realize the emotional the mental physical magnitude of that whole thing so anyways we went ahead with the surgery and then two weeks later we found out that it had already spread to my bones so i was um, considered de novo meaning that um right on the on stage stage i've been diagnosed stage four um there's different stages to the cancer the stage four is the I guess the last stage, if you want to say that. Um, so went through different battles, um, was introduced to an oncologist who I was very fortunate to have. And since I was closer to my menopause, even though I wasn't, he recommended a trial drug. At that point, again, it's like, what do we have to lose? I did Dr. Google and all sorts of stuff where the statistics are very dismal and that's one thing i would say right on the onset is don't doctor google if you're looking for support look at the sites that are available out there instead of trying to google stuff because some of the stuff that you end up getting at the time of emotional dilemma that you're going through can be very difficult and emotionally challenging and scary. Yeah, we've talked about Dr. Google a lot recently on the show, and it's a very dangerous place to go. But you've been living with NBC now for a decade. And so how do you cope with the emotional challenges that have come with this? And what resources or support systems do you use to help you? Yeah, so they say I have the outcrier of this. <laughs> Um, in terms of it's 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 very challenging because one of the first misconceptions is when people look at you, they think, oh, are you sure you're kind of sick? Like you because you look normal, like but everything is internal. Like for example, my pain is bone pain because it's spread to the bones, so it's very very painful. But outwardly, people will look at me and say, okay you look normal kind of a thing. And I think that's where also the education part comes in, the understanding, the education, that people need to be aware what what is about breast cancer, what different stages are there, and what people go through. Like, it's not that you want sympathy, but it's what people go through when they're going through. So the challenges for me were like, obviously, like the mental part of it. Uh, the biggest one for me was not being able to work. I remember going back to work very fast like after my surgery and um, everyone is like, why are you coming back so quickly? Like, I mean, you have time. And when I sit and sort of think about it, I realized that was the only thing I had control over in my life was my job. Whereas everything else, like my family, my life, like none of that stuff was of any control. Whereas when I went to work, I knew exactly what was I doing, what I needed as an outcome. And um, so sometimes it's that control that just makes you sort of sane, so to speak. Um, in terms of day-to-day -day coping, um, my family, 
um, has been great, great emotional um, support for me. Um, my faith as well. Um, and then different, I do a different advocacy groups. Um, and um, so that sort of helps me as well to see if I can, even if I can make a difference in one person's life, um, then I feel like there is something that that we have, I have done or collectively if we can make a difference in terms, as I mentioned, education, awareness, research. How important is uh, self-advocacy when living with MBC? And has how you communicate with your healthcare providers changed over the years? Um, yes, for sure. Um, for the latter question is, um, as I said, like when I was first diagnosed, I was very naive about what breast cancer was. Like, I mean, one thing right off the bat is the correlation is that um, chemotherapy versus cancer. That was that was given to me that that's the only thing like because who sits down and says let me research what cancer is about if it's not impacting you personally or people within around your surroundings and um so when he told me that there is this new treatment and i highly recommend and i'm going yeah he's already given up on me i'm on stage four I've just got time. Again, Dr. Google comes in, right? And I remember him saying, no, Karima, just trust me. And I was on that trial drug for almost nine years. So I was very fortunate. And it's it's research and um, advocacy and the awareness that sort of creates all these things. And now in from the 10 years, that drug has become um, like it's available, FDA approved. And I feel I made my part by being part of that um, research. And that was one of the things my husband and I talked about in saying that, what do we have to lose at this point in terms of getting into the trial? Yes, there's a lot of unknowns, but even if nothing comes out of it, maybe somebody else will benefit by me going in the trial. So that that on its own is a form of advocacy, I think, I feel. And anytime people have questions, I, I sort of, I'm very open about my illness or my disease. And um, anytime people want to talk about it, and I'm very upfront, and I will start a conversation if need be, because the, that rapport or that uh, emotional support, even between the patients, people that are diagnosed with each other is, is very different than people around you. Like even with my family, like I get, there is certain things um, I, I'm aware of or they are aware of, but that correlation you have with that other patient is very different. Is there any advice you would give to somebody who was just diagnosed with MBC? Hope, faith, um, research, advocacy be an advocate for yourself um we're very fortunate in canada to have the kind of uh, medical system that we have but sometimes you do need to be an advocate for yourself and just to surround yourself with people that love you and are there for you but we also as patients we need to also realize the caregivers and sometimes i think they are forgotten um, and I myself for the longest time didn't think like I would sit sometimes and ponder if I was going to be here 
next year at this time for a celebration or whatever. For, for almost three years in the beginning, I did that, not realizing that my loved ones are going through the same thing. They might not speak about it, but they themselves are going through exactly the same thing. And so I think, yes, we are patients and we're going through a lot of stuff and a lot of challenges, but so do the caregivers or people around us. So that we need to, we need to be aware of that. You are... A delight. And I just want to mention, people probably don't will, won't know this, but I just want to mention that you and I had this scheduled a couple of times and you weren't feeling quite up to it. And I am so delighted that you were able to join me today, Karima. You're just, you're just a joy. Um, so where can people find out more about NBC and, you know, uh, and all of those uh, key points you mentioned about finding out about how to self-advocate and speak with your healthcare provider? NBCTime.ca. And Candice, I want to apologize as well for all the mishaps for last God knows how many weeks, but sometimes with this disease, it's very unpredictable. And you have been such a joy for me as well. So thank you. And thank you for continuing to do this in terms of making the awareness and being advocate for this. So I really, really appreciate on behalf of all the NBC people. Thank you. Thank you, Karima. We'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Bye. No, I've still got a lot of value left in me. Unmanaged finances can cause stress, and we all know the negative impact stress can have on our health. Thankfully, we have women like Jess and Colleen from Two Girls Investing who have our back. Created as a response to the growing need for financial education in Canada, Two Girls Investing is committed to increasing financial literacy so that Canadians feel financially secure. They join me with some advice to make sense of your money. Welcome to What She Said, ladies. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. So to start, could you just briefly tell my listeners about your background and the mission behind your TikTok account, Two Girls Investing? Yeah, for sure. We, um, we don't come from traditional financial backgrounds. We both work full time, but we both made it a goal of ours to become financially literate. And we kind of realized that there is a bit of a lack in financial literacy in Canada, specifically for women. Um, so we decided to start this uh, account to start sharing all the information that we've learned that's helped us to become financially successful in hopes that this will help other people feel more financially secure and hope to take down some of the walls to, to learning about this financial uh, literacy, um, specifically about investing, budgeting, saving, and just how to become financially secure overall. I, I think it's important to say that we are not financial advisors. Um, we are just two women with a lot of financial information that we want to share. Excellent. All right. Well, let's talk about the the biggest thing that we're all looking at is inflation, uh, which, you know, continues. Well, I did see today, I should say that it's fallen a little bit, but it still remains very high. So uh, how can Canadians protect their purchasing power and minimize the impact on their savings? Yeah, inflation's a big one right now. And what inflation does with increasing prices, it actually takes away the purchasing power of your dollar. So what your dollar used to be able to buy, you can't buy as much. Therefore, it decreases the value of your dollar. So if we're just leaving our dollar sitting in traditional savings accounts, inflation is going to eat away at that money. Um, so one of the cornerstones with financial advice, obviously, is budgeting always. So make sure even now more than ever, keeping a good budget is important because those little costs are adding up to more now because they, they cost more. So always budgeting and 
getting rid of your debt now is even more important than ever because the interest rates on debt have increased. So the amount that you're paying back in interest every month is is going to be increasing. So, you know, um, a line of credit that used to be 2%, you know, now 8, 12, you know, even higher right now. So the amount that you're paying in interest on that debt every month has skyrocketed. So always paying off high interest debt is going to help big time. And then the silver lining with inflation, if there is one, is that higher interest rates have actually made high interest savings accounts and GICs more attractive. So instead of leaving your money, their savings in a traditional savings account, which normally gets you about 0.24% return, high interest savings accounts right now are like 3 to 4% uh, return on your money. And GICs, for a one-year GIC, you can get 5% return, whereas before with lower interest rates, these just weren't really that attractive. So if you do want a lower risk way of, you know, keeping your money safe, you know, fighting inflation might not overtake the amount of inflation, but keeping your money, uh, high interest savings and GICs are actually a pretty good place right now. Okay. Can you share some tips then on how to build an emergency fund and why it's so essential, particularly right now? Yes, absolutely. So um, first of all, just explain what an emergency fund is. So an emergency fund is um, money that you've saved up in case of emergencies. And often it's um, you know, close to three months, some people have up to six months, and it's so that uh, in the case of an emergency, you're not pulling into your um, investments or using other debt to secure you through these emergencies, which can be um, large home expenses, vehicle expenses, job loss, um, anything like that. And um, yeah, it's really important right now because, like we said, if, if you're using a um, uh, debt to kind of get you through these emergencies, those, those high interest that we're paying right now really adds up. So it's just having that saved up. One of my best tips is really just uh, having it set up automatically off of your paycheck where it takes a little bit and puts it into um, your savings account. And often the high interest savings account um, is where most people store their emergency funds. Um, and yeah, it's, it's the easiest way because you don't see it. It just goes right from your paycheck into this high interest savings to save up for that emergency fund. Um, I'm, I'm as a a mom and a family, I, I often say like a little bit goes a long way. So you don't need to have these massive chunks that you're putting into it every paycheck, but just making sure you're putting a little bit so that it's adding up over time. All right, excellent. We don't have a lot of time left, but I want to talk about <laughs> it because it seems a little bit weird, but in times of financial stress, we tend to make impulse decisions, especially impulse purchases, which is probably not the best thing to be doing right now. So um, what are some common pitfalls to avoid when it comes to managing personal finances during a crisis like this? Yeah, when there's a crisis like this, people get emotional and fear comes into play. And once we get our emotions mixed up mixed up in finances, it's recipe for disaster. So people start making rash dishes and because they're scared, they think purchases will make them feel better, you know, a little bit of retail therapy. Um, and it does in the short term, but long term, it's not going to help you out with your finances. So just making sure you're trying to stay away from those impulse buys, keeping them limited, and then also not making any rash decisions about your uh, investments. You should have a clear plan before you start investing or dealing with your finances. Stay the course. Make sure you're keeping to that plan no matter what's happening, no matter how emotional you get or what the economic um, you know, environment is like. Um, because any good investment plan should be able to weather any storm as long as you're well diversified. So not changing from your course and also not jumping on the biggest next fad. You know, we want to cling to something that's going to make us a lot of money hearing about 
these huge crypto booms or the next biggest stock, not jumping into those right away, making sure you're staying well diversified, keeping those higher risk investments that you think is going to make a lot of money to a lower portion of your investments. So trying to keep it, it's really a mental game, trying to keep your emotions, emotions at bay. All right, excellent. You are always saying sharing great advice over on TikTok and Instagram. So uh, could you share those accounts so people could keep up with you? Yeah, you can find us um, on Instagram. It's at Two Girls Investing, and on TikTok, it's the same Two Girls Investing. Well, I am following very closely and listening to all your advice. So thank you so much for joining me today, ladies, and we'll have you back again soon. Great, thank you so Sounds much. Good. We look forward to it. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I'm gonna hold on to the edge for dear life. My next guest recently released her best-selling debut memoir, Song of the Sparrow, which has received critical acclaim from numerous artists and publications. Alongside the book, Tara McLean also released her accompanying album, Sparrow, on March 31st. The album is a collection of reimagined past work and new material, including the single Lay Here in the Dark. Tara joins me to share a little bit of the story behind the memoir and the album before we play the single Lay in the Dark for you in its entirety. Welcome to What She Said, Tara. Hi, thank you. So congratulations on the success of your debut memoir. Uh, Can you tell us about the inspiration behind the book and what readers can expect from this emotional journey? Absolutely. Well, um, back in 2020, I wrote an essay about being a woman in the music business and body image, and it went viral and a lit agent saw it. And then she ended up shopping the idea of me writing a book to HarperCollins and they picked it up right away. So I had the last few years to write this book. And it's just been a wonderful experience of excavating my life, excavating music, and, uh, and then making a new record to go with it. It's been fantastic. Which brings me right to my next question. So the album Sparrow is a companion to the memoir. Um, How did you decide which songs to include? And you also worked with a producer, Daniel Ledwell. What was it like working with him? Um, Figuring out what songs to include was a little difficult. I've got, um, you know, lots of songs that I love, but I wanted to choose the ones that seemed to be the most significant to me, either internally uh, as a songwriter that sort of changed me or songs that opened doors for me out in the world, like hit songs or the song that I was discovered singing on a ferry boat in BC. And um, working with Daniel Ledwell was a dream. I'd wanted to work with him for years and it was just really exciting to spend a month with him uh, by the lake in Nova Scotia, his beautiful home, and uh, just dive into these old songs and make a couple of new ones. All right, so let's talk about Lay Here in the Dark, which we're gonna play next. Uh, Can you give some insight into the song's meaning and maybe a bit of the creative process behind it? Well, this song was a moment um, a few years ago when things were feeling really dark. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I'd gone through a a divorce after 16 years of marriage and I just, I was feeling the darkness coming on, but it was a, it was a big one. 
And so I reached for my guitar um, and I wrote this song and it really pulled me through. And anytime I sing it to people, they seem to really resonate with it uh, as something that um, feels really right. Because sometimes you can't fight the darkness. Sometimes you can't run from it. You can't numb yourself. You have to just be with it. And so that's what this song is about. Just being with the darkness until the light comes out. All right. I love it. Let's play Lay Here in the Dark from Tara McLean right now.
That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.